and to honor him. And so as we look at 1 Corinthians and uh, even understanding, we see this in verse 1. I'm not going to go through a lot of the book. We'll go through some scripture as well. But we see here in verse 1, it says, Paul called to be an apostle of Jesus Christ through the will of God and Sosthenes, our brother, to the church of God, which is at Corinth, to those who are sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints with all who are in every place, call on the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord, both theirs and ours. So we pray to open up. Heavenly Father, we ask that you bless this time. Help us as we understand the background, uh, the city of Corinth, the time of Christ. Help us to remember that uh, you are um, still God. You are the one who knew what was taking place. And Lord, this scripture is an opportunity for us to learn how to live for you, how to honor you, and help us to study it and to learn and grow. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Paul verse first visited Corinth on his second missionary journey. If you go to 1 Corinthians chapter 16, or excuse me, I take it back. Go back to Acts, 1 Corinthians, go to Acts 16. Acts chapter 16, you can hold your spot if you want, but Acts chapter 16, verse 9. A few years ago, we went through some of Acts, and Acts chapter 16, and uh, beginning in verse 6, it states, it talks about the, what we are familiar with as the Macedonian call, the area called Macedonia. Now, when they had gone through Persia and the region of Galatia, they were forbidden by the Holy Spirit to preach the word in Asia. After they had come to Mysia, um, they tried to go into Bithynia, but the Spirit did not permit them. So passing by Mysia, they came down to Troas. And a vision appeared to Paul in the night. A man of Macedonia stood and pleaded with him, saying, Come over to Macedonia and help us. Macedonia was the area that included Corinth. And if you go a little further in chapter 18, we have here in chapter 18, verses 1 through 18, his time in Corinth. And he was there for almost two years, as we see there. And um, there were things that occurred there. He meets Aquila, Priscilla, and he, he had left Athens. And he serves here and stays here for a period of time. And this is when he established the church. And um, then he goes on. And the city of Corinth, let me give you some background on the city of Corinth. The city of Corinth was one of the largest in, within the, um, as we think about the Greek and Roman, because it was a Greek city, but it was repopulated and uh, covered by when Rome came. And it was said to have about 90,000 in 40 uh, B.C. before, and most important commerce centers of Greece. So it was a very important center during the Greek Empire, and it was located on an isthmus that separated the Adriatic and the Aegean Sea. It hosted the Ithmian Games. We think about the Olympic Games that occurred in Athens. Well, the Ithmian Games took every two years and was honor of Poseidon. Who is Poseidon? Yeah, got to see water, things like that. And we'll go through and we'll see the influence. But these were a mix of athletic and religious um, ceremonies and games because within these games included sacrifice included prayers to a deity and even vows the athletes actually took vows to deities so i don't want you to be confused that they they during the greek times um they were 
um, more religious as well. And then when the Romans came a little later, they continued them on, but it was a very Greek-influenced city. And during the um, Hellenistic times of Paul, the games probably became more of an um, entertainment-based, and uh, they had um, held to honor rulers. And, but Corinth was destroyed in 146 B.C., and uh, it actually is an example of a Greek city that was destroyed by the Romans because of the rebellion, and then it was rebuilt by Julius Caesar in 44 B.C. And it, it held a prominent role in trade and commerce between the eastern and western ends of the Roman Empire. And while I don't always do this, there, I have a video for you because I want you to understand a little bit about how important, um, how important Corinth was, just influence as a city ethmus. As, as we think about influential cities in the U.S., we always think of like major ports. Okay, you think of L.A. because that's the second largest, the largest New York City, and we think about uh, different areas. And really, they don't even do capitals that well because it's just the people within the capital area. While Phoenix is supposed to be the fifth largest city, it's only the city proper, not the suburbs as well. But as we think about influential cities, Corinth was an influential city. So take a, have a few minutes, and you're going to look at this video and kind of give you a lesson on the background of Corinth. So, We cannot understand the history or the archaeology of Corinth without first understanding its geography. And the three most important things about Corinth were location, Location and location. This is the Mediterranean Sea. And it's broadly got two main areas we talk about. The Eastern Mediterranean, which is sort of from Greece to the east. And then the Western Mediterranean, which goes on uh, towards Italy and Spain. Now, Greece is in the center of that peninsula. And on one side of Greece, you have the Adriatic Sea, between Italy and Greece. On the other side, you have the Aegean Sea between Greece and what is now Turkey. It used to be the Roman province of Asia Minor. That is going to be important too. Let's zero in on the area in the red box. The area immediately in the south of Greece, that sort of lump sticking out, uh, is the Peloponnese or Peloponnese. And you can see that Athens is over here, and there is Corinth. You can see also there are two other gulfs coming in. From the Aegean Sea, you have the Saronic Gulf coming right in here, and from <coughs> the, um, the Adriatic Sea, you have the Gulf of Corinth coming right into here. So, we have an isthmus. What is an isthmus? The, the word in Greek, isthmus, means the neck. And it means a narrow neck of land separating two larger bodies of land. You see it here. There in the red ring is the isthmus. And when we use in English the word isthmus, it comes from this place. This was the first isthmus. <laughs> this is the isthmus. And from that, in Greek, we name every other, other, other isthmus the same. So here we have the Peloponnese, and here we have the mainland of Greece connected by the Isthmus, and Corinth is right on there. This shows it more closely still, because there's an even further extension coming in uh, from the Gulf here, the Saronic Gulf, and from the Gulf of Corinth, which is all this, it comes in tighter here. And Corinth is this area just 
to the south of the Gulf of Corinth. So this is going to be very important. You see how Corinth was standing up on the Act of Corinth. They were looking down over the old city, looking out at the sea there. In the Isthmus, when they tried to sh sail ships in ancient times, they had a real problem going around the coast here. This was a very dangerous coast on the south of the Peloponnese. And in those days, ships across the Mediterranean, sailing ships like the one Paul used, hugged the coast. They did not like to get out of sight of land. They would stay fairly close to the, to the, the coastline, to the shore, uh, keep it within, within view if possible, or just out of view and get back in as soon as they could. That was a dangerous route. So how do you get trade between Eastern Mediterranean and the Western Mediterranean? Well, you could bring your ships all the way through to the, through the Gulf of Corinth. You could unload what was in them there. And then you could go on through the Saronic Gulf into the Eastern Mediterranean. Location, location. And you could do it, of course, going the other way around, west or east, the same would apply. Okay, and here is the Lachaion, which is the port of Corinth, which is on the Gulf of Corinth, and we're now looking back from the water, from the Chion, and you see Corinth there, and behind it, the Acro Corinth Hill. The other side, where you get the Saronic <coughs> Gulf, the old harbour of Kenclea, and there, there are two old stone moles or jetties sticking out into the water, the north one and the south one. But the problem is, what do you do about that narrow neck of land, that isthmus in between? It's not very wide. It's only, as you can see, well, it's about, uh, it's about four miles across. Um, just about four miles, not very large, far. But far enough. Well, now we move to archaeology, and we find an answer. They built a causeway of stone. They called the diarchos, meaning the hornage. And there are grooves in it where they had trolleys with wheels and they would offload the cargo on one side, run it across and load it onto another ship waiting on the other side. Thus, the people who owned the boats, the ships, were not risking losing both cargo and ship and crew. And they could even take small, and I mean small, you can see by the size of what you're looking at, they could only they could take small boats and put them, small ships, onto these trolleys and pull them over. Probably by manpower rather than oxen, as far as we know. So here we have the Diokos going across, and this made Corinth very rich. Because all of that trade between Eastern and Western Mediterranean was being channeled through an area that was totally dominated by this one city, Corinth. All right. <clears throat> the reason I wanted to give you that is just to understand a little bit of the geography, but also as you think about the city, what it was known as, what it was known for. And uh, if you think, if we were to think in modern day terms, what would be something similar to that, uh, um, the Isthmus, 
as we think about it. Panama Canal, Suez Canal, and just how rich it was and influential it was, especially for trade and commerce at that time. And so that is a context. And even looking at the, at the city itself, it heralded various cultures um, because of its geographic location, coming in ships and travels from all over. Uh, there are many sailors, travelers from various regions. I know we have some who have served in the Navy, and if you've ever gotten to go, um, usually they, um, the recruiting line for the Navy was what? What is the recruiting line for the Navy? Do you remember? Do you know? If you want to see the world, it used to be if you want to see the world, join the Navy because they take you there, right, and ship? I mean, we've got at least three or four who served in the Navy. But, um, you know, hope maybe you didn't see the world, but uh, the... The whole point was, in the ship at that time, you would go to different places. And so uh, the city had heralded um, people from many different backgrounds because of the location, them coming there. And the common trade language was Latin. People spoke Latin. Latin now is a dead language, we call it, but that's what the Romans spoke. That was a commerce uh, language, but most people spoke Greek. Why did everyone speak Greek? Right, it's in Greece, but why else? Why did most of the world speak Greek? I know you guys are like, oh, history. I don't want any history. Go ahead. Shout out. Why? Alexander the Great, you know, the conqueror, the one who, like, influenced the whole world. And the Romans helped with commerce because they built the roads so to allow passageway and trade to be easy access to all of their empire. But Alexander the Great, as we think about it, Greek, influence. Greek has such an influence in so many parts of our lives, not just the Bible, but in medical if I said cardiac issue, maybe you've watched uh, um, the Buffalo Bills game and the Cincinnati game. You've heard about CPR, cardiac. Cardia is a Greek word. Um, and as we think about isthmus, you understand that. Even within the um, thyroid, the, there's a uh, tissue, the name is called the isthmus. But my point is, as we understand that, the influence of the Greek culture. And so it's important that as we study the background, the Greek, uh, Corinth was modeled, even the city government the influence has Greek influence, but also Roman influence. And the Roman government, because Romans were in rules, in, in control. And so go ahead, advance that slide. What happens is we have the political offices included three positions. The, in the city, the leader was called, wasn't a governor or even the mayor, it was a council. And there are actually two of those within a city. And they're sometimes known as you read through the Bible, maybe the um, word magistrate, uh, they use that, and also, um, I think there's another term, um, prefect, um, the prefect. And so those were the leaders, the two uh, positions for the council, and they were elected, or sometimes they were put in their position by someone who had influence, uh, the Caesar or the, um, from Rome, they would put someone there. And then you had the, in government, the praetors, and the praetors were more of like judges. So if you think about 12 judges uh, governing this large city, and then the uh, coesters were um, more like a, um, individuals who are like a senate. We think more of a, of a senate, even think about a state senate. But that's kind of how it is, a city-state. So at that time, and so what they governed. So Corinth was a very influential city, and its government was modeled after Rome. And uh, so he mentioned the Acro-Corinth, the view down there. And it was, there was a wall of six miles in circumference that protected the city. And the Lechian Road, as talked about going there down to the water, that Lechian Road also started in the north of Corinth. And uh, what occurred there is 
the, um, brought travelers down from the north to stretch as wide as 20 feet. The Romans were good because they made things wide, stretched wide 20 feet coming down into the city. Then it came into what was called the Agora. Um, if you've ever traveled internationally, how many of you have traveled internationally? You know, quite a bit. You know, what is, what is significant about traveling internationally when you go to many different, especially smaller countries, what do they have that is different that, um, in regards to shopping that is different from in the U.S.? Yeah, open market, marketplace. And it was the same here in Corinth. When you came down through, they had these stalls, they had the booths. They talk about it. They had a marketplace. They had an area to selling. As, we, as you think about um, tourism, you know, little shops. But they had this large marketplace that uh, obviously you had to buy groceries and food and selling. And that was what the Agora was. It opened there and as you entered the city. It, it was a large rectangular marketplace comes in. And then we have the Bema, and maybe you've heard of the Bema seat, but this Bema that was there in Corinth was more of an elevated platform that people could share ideas. And um, it was one that, um, a large elevated speaker's platform and then benches for an audience. And that was literally right there when Paul talks about, think about in Acts, being down by the Agora and uh, the Bema seat. As we think about the background also, not only of the area um, there demographically, we want to look at also religiously the variety of beliefs and accepted practices. Now, there are many Greek influential temples. And uh, here it's a little harder for us in the U.S. to understand about, um, we have churches that you don't really know what goes on in different churches. Um, sometimes you know if you've been in other churches, but in other practices. Whereas in the first century, they, the practices were a little more uh, visible because it wasn't enclosed in just a building. Uh, I, was, I had the opportunity to be in the Damascus, Syria, and then out um, to um, an area in Syria, and it had a temple of Baal, if you've heard of Baal. And that temple uh, of Baal, it was a temple, but also the courtyard, the whole area, it covered a mile square. Now, we understand a mile square in Phoenix because we live on a grid. So imagine a mile square dedicated to a religious group of practice of Baal. And, you know, it's not, you drive by there, you see that, you know where that is. Um, it would be very influential. Obviously, they didn't drive by, but they would have to walk by. But that's a long area to walk by. Um, back when people walked to school or walked more often or different areas, you walk, you're able to see that. And... For a long time, maybe you're thinking about it, you're looking at it, what takes place. But the religious nature of the worship at Corinth influenced the people. You would see it. Uh, if you think about uh, even Aphrodite, known for the temple prostitutes. Um, some say there were a thousand. I don't think there was a thousand that time. Earlier on, there may have been those that have worshipped there or been part of that practice. But then Hermes. Hermes was the uh, Greek god of shepherds, land, travel, and literature. Then there was um, uh, Heracles. Heracles, also known as, you know the other name of Heracles? In Greek became who? Hercules. Hercules, you know. Um, he was the son of Zeus and uh, very becoming popular with some of the uh, comics and, and movies. But Hercules. And uh, Athena, the goddess of battle, strategy, and wisdom. And Athena, she was always accompanied by an animal. Do you know what that was? An owl, okay? 
and the goddess Nike, which you should be familiar, you probably heard Nike. What does Nike mean in Greek? Nike, it doesn't mean shoes, it doesn't mean Michael Jordan, but it means victory. That's where they took it. Nike actually is a Greek word for victory. Pretty appropriate, right? You don't want a pair of shoes that mean mediocre, right? Oh, look at my shoes, man. It means mediocre, you know? But Nike, victory. And so also they had temples that worshipped these individuals. And of course, Poseidon, who was the god of the sea, water. And he also was of earthquakes and horses. And so you see the Greek influence and in their worship, and it would have been um, throughout the city and the people who brought sacrifices. So as we get later, even within the groups that sacrificed food and took things there. Um, Another one I wanted to stress is Asclepius. Um, Asclepius was the Greek god of medicine or of physicians. Maybe you think about the um, the staff with the snake. And uh, he had a, a small sanctuary at Corinth. And at Corinth... So in order to have a, a sanctuary there, there were three elements you had to have. First of all, you had to have a temple. You also had to have a well or a spring. So to have healing um, and medicinal purposes, and then also a place to stay for the people. So people would travel all over and come there to this um, sanctuary of Asclepius for healing, maybe sickness. And so if you read through the Bible and think about these ones who wanted to go down in the stirring of the waters or just the medicinal aspects, it comes alive to help you understand some of the background or healing. You have a woman who touched Jesus' sickness with a plague. They, did, they couldn't just go to a hospital. You know, and so they would try different methodologies for healing and help. And here at this um, sanctuary for Asclepius, there were, because of the emphasis on wellness, there were trees, there were baths, a theater, a gymnasium, and a library. All at the sanctuary. What does that sound like? A college? Um, not necessarily because you're going for wellness. Yeah. A resort. a resort. I mean, think about it. Just go to North Scottsdale. You can go to a, like a resort. If you could, you know, someone said, oh, I'll pay for you to stay, you know, the nice resort, the princess up north, you know, and stay there for a week or sometime or two weeks. You'd be like, oh, this is refreshing. Get pampered, you know. Uh, you'd feel pretty well, right? But it's similar. it was similar to that, you know, the peacefulness, the tranquility. These are all aspects of the city, and you have people coming from all over. And the thing about the city, because remember, the location, it was wealthy. It was well off. It, actually, the parallels are a lot. Um, remind me of Scottsdale, as you think about the resort and the area. Um, and as we think about this area, the historical and cultural context also is important during the time of Paul because the city estimated during the time of Paul about 150 to as many as 600,000, they said. And it possessed a large multi-ethnic and multicultural influence. It was a city that was open to new ideas. It was a city that had um, put academics, music, art, religion. And it was a city that was influential on others. If you think about the trends, where do trends start in the U.S.? In the bigger cities, but how about, um, but usually where do they begin? Do you know? Usually the coasts, so either New York or L.A. Why? Well, some of it is just because they are large cities. Some of it is because there's also more of an urban area. I mean, some of you, if you ever, how many have heard of K-pop? You know, in the 80s, things like that. Some of you have, you know, influence. Um, Kimchi, the whole Korean influence. You know, how many... 
if I could say Jollibee's, I could just go on food alone and say, okay, I could give you all these different things, boba. You know, the influences that had, have come to the U.S. Some of it is international, and they become trains. Okay, we could go back into the 80s, breakdancing. You know, started some of the urban areas, hip-hop, things like that. Uh, there are different trends. Even the, the reggae music, who went, I was on the East Coast, New York, that started in Jamaica, different areas. So you have all these influences that are multicultural, and that would have been influential within the setting, but also the setting for a young church that was filled with problems and challenges. There was academic idealism. And let me give you that. What that is, if you think about idealism, it's a metaphysical view that associates reality to ideas in the mind rather than material objects. What that refers to, if you think about it, let's end world hunger. Well, that sounds good in concept, but do you think we can ever end world hunger? Probably not. Even, you know, we can put things toward that and try to attempt it, but there are those who say, well, we can end world hunger. You know, even as we think about poverty, we'll always have those. And Christ even talked about, you know, we'll always have the poor among us. doesn't mean that we should ignore it, but those idealists say, oh, we can stop it. We can end this. We can do this. And that's the idealism. And sometimes when there are those who have that academic belief, yeah, okay, I have the right plan. We can do this if everyone does this. You know, is it wrong to help try to treat our, our world and environment better? No, not necessarily, but the way to do it, even going electric, oh, yeah, that's fine. You know, you can try to do that, but to just stop and do that, we can't do that. It's, it's going to affect um, a lot of our world. And so the idealism idea states, oh, let's just do this. And so you have that context. Also, um, as we think about wealth, in any society where there is great wealth, disposable income, what happens? I know you didn't think, I didn't come to church to be asked questions. I know, a little different, but this is the background introduction as we think about it. What, is, what occurs? Okay, you forget God, yes. Some don't, don't even know God. What about civilization societies that have very well-off, wealthy? Yeah. No moral standards, and that leads to the next. First of all, with wealth, you can do whatever you want, you know? I mean, if you were excessively wealthy, what would be one thing you'd like to buy, you know? You could dream big. Okay, I'm going to buy a, a sports car, a nice house. You know, and you, you just live very selfishly. But then also, as we think about it, no morals, you can do whatever you want. It, think about the time of the judges. Everyone did that which was right in their own eyes. You don't think about other people. You, don't, you think about what you have and how people should uh, take care of you. And that comes with a great wealth, disposable income. It leads to what's called a lascivious lifestyle. And a lascivious emphasizes more of the sexual immorality. Um, it actually presents very similar to our Western day society. Because as you understand about it, it just becomes a focus on the material, on the superficial. This is the background of the church at Corinth. And 1 Corinthians 5.9, if we go back to 1 Corinthians 5.9, and uh, let me accelerate uh, just understanding 1 Corinthians 5.9 It says, I wrote to you in my epistle not to keep company with sexually immoral people. Why did I pick that verse up? What happens is that this refers to a prior letter that was written to the church at Corinth by Paul earlier. And while he was at Ephesus, this letter is lost to us. So technically, 
we had the book we call 1 Corinthians. It wasn't the first book, first letter to the Corinthians. It's the second um, letter. But if we say 2 Corinthians and 3 Corinthians, we'd be all confused. So the other letter's lost to us. We don't know what it says. But obviously, this is the inspired word, 1 Corinthians. So, um, but we know that there was another letter lost, but it helps us in understanding as we read 1 Corinthians. Oh, there's another letter. Okay, and so probably as we see 1 Corinthians 1.11, it refers to prior reports and disorders in the church. 1 Corinthians 1.11, it states and says, um, For it has been declared to me concerning you, my brethren, by those of Chloe's household. Now, it doesn't mean that they're tattlers, probably friends there, but they'd come to Ephesus and told Paul what's going on. And there are contentions among you. You know, you get a group together, they didn't get along. And we, we'll see later that there were factions, divisions. And um, it continues on and says that there's disorders. And then a group or a delegation may have visited Paul at Ephesus and may have even stayed there. If you go to uh, 1 Corinthians 16, 17, near the end of the book where he is giving uh, the farewell, you have these individuals mentioned in verse 17. It says, I am glad about the coming of Stephanus, Fortunatus, and Achaicus. For what was lacking on your part, they supplied. They may have been part of a delegation that came from Corinth to Paul, maybe saying, hey, we have some questions. We want to know how to deal with this. And some of them may have stayed with Paul. We know that some stayed with Paul to help him in the ministry. And uh, co-workers. And the church probably had questions because in the first letter even sent, if you look at first going to 1 Corinthians chapter 7, which talks about marriage, um, it says, now concerning the things of which I, you wrote to me. So they probably had and, you know, brought this letter and delegation and said, hey, we have questions about what's taking place. And so 1 Corinthians is actually a book. Remember the theme is how to relate to other believers within the context of the local church. But 1 Corinthians is actually a letter in response to those questions that the Corinthians had. And to help in that. So he, um, 1 Corinthians is that. And so he's responding to them. And in 1 Corinthians 1 through 3, we have um, even Sosthenes mentioned in Acts 18, 17. He was the leader of the um, synagogue, Jewish leader. And he gets beat up back in Acts uh, 18, 17 in, from Corinth. And then 1 Corinthians 14, 37. And this is, uh, if you go to 1 Corinthians 14, 37, we have an important verse here. 1 Corinthians 14, 37. It says, If anyone thinks himself to be a prophet or spiritual, let him acknowledge that the things which I write to you are the commandments of the Lord. Here we have a declaration understanding, Paul understands that this is, he was inspired by God to write these. They're not only the authority as an apostle, but also from God that uh, he writes, and this is the word of God. And it's important to understand that because even within the present context of a local church, there are benefits as we read and go through the book of 1 Corinthians. Now, we're not, hopefully we don't have all the issues of 1 Corinthians. I, hopefully, you know, we don't have issues you know, of 1 Corinthians. As we go through this, if you've never read 1 Corinthians, there are some challenges in there, uh, both with sexual immorality. But guess what? These are some of the 15 distinct issues that Paul deals with in 1 Corinthians. Partisanship. Um, the, facts, the factions that are created. Some go after Apollos. Some go after, say, I only go after Jesus. Or some follow Paul. 
Um, there's incest. There's prostitution. Celibacy within marriage. Christians married to one another asking about divorce. Christians married to unbelievers asking about, hey, should we stay married or what should we do? Questions surrounding marriage and remarriage. Uh, how to deal with lawsuits. Should I sue them? Oh, they did this to me. Uh, what about idolatry? Have any of you, you know, given food offered to idols? What do, we, what do you do about that? Or should I eat it? You know, some of you might be like, I don't like to waste food. I don't like to waste food. You know, it's in our refrigerator. You don't need to eat it, right? But some of you, oh, guess what? It's gone. Uh, has it gone to the idols? Have you been to a Thai restaurant? Sometimes they put out in different restaurants, you know, they, they put out like, oh, hopefully we'll have a good day. Oh, no, this food. Are they serving me the same food? They had questions. Not the same as today, but, you know, food idolatry. Concerns about women praying and prophesying in immodest ways. You know, head coverings, things like that. Oh, what about that? Um, inequality in the communal meals. Uh, there were some who didn't wait for others because they were what's called love feasts. Today we're going to celebrate the Lord's Supper as well, which is a little different. They did that afterwards. Uh, there is um, disorganized worship, speaking in tongues, competing voices. There's literally some of their worship services were like chaotic. You know, people jumping up. Have you ever heard of the third wave movement up in um, Toronto, the Toronto Blessing? There was a time where within their service, there were people like acting like dogs, running around and jumping, and what they called the holy laughter music. Very chaotic. Um, it, was, it was a little wild. Um, there is the disorganized worship. There was inequality in the communal meal, denials of the bodily resurrections of Jesus. There were those who said Jesus didn't really raise from the dead. Maybe it was just what the, in theological circles they go, soul sleep. There's some beliefs that Jesus didn't bodily raise from the dead. How did that happen? How did it occur? What happens after we die? Um, if you think about it, those issues are addressed. What about um, the collection of a large sum of money to be sent to Jerusalem? And, uh, and then Paul's change in travel plans. Those are mentioned. See, the Corinthian church was challenged by many differences, comprised of people who had a completely pagan background or unsaved background. There were new converts. There were those who didn't have an understanding of the Bible. There were those who were well off. There were those who didn't have much. There were those who were complicated by gender dynamics involving sexual activity. Diverse Corinthian converts brought with their Christian community all the hostility, suspicion, you know, preconceived ideas, beliefs that maybe they grew up with, or they think, what about this or that? especially because of the influence of multicultures, of different ethnic backgrounds, of world beliefs. And think about the philosophical ideas as well. All some of the same things that we're dealing with in today's world. And I think that as we go through this book, there'll be help. The Corinthian church was navigating relationships with people of different genders and complex and diverse ways in the same way that we do in our present age as singles, as um, betrothed as uh, those in different married situations, happily married, happily um, unmarried, <laughs> um, and um, married to another Christian or married to an unbeliever or not married, whatever condition you're in. And so we can learn from this book and uh, use it as a blessing. And really the theme this morning I want you to remember is how to relate to other believers within the context of the local church. The desire as we study the book of 1 Corinthians is that you remember each of us have a role within the local church. Above all, I believe it's to glorify God. In whatever situation, set of circumstances you're in, you learn that you can honor God in that. 
if you're facing struggles, if you, everything's good, you know what? You still have the obligation and responsibilities to serve and honor God. Whether you're married, whether you're unmarried, whether you're divorced, whether you, you know, uh, at this time there were multicultural different things, ideas, and concepts. How do we navigate within society the structures of all these different beliefs? And we think these are new ideas. Some weren't. I mean, there was a lot of homosexuality, a lot of different things that were going on in, in the church, um, the incest, the things going on, and to understand that. And so as a believer, we have to, as we learn to submit to one another, to submit to the Word of God and read. Above all, I encourage you to read the Word of God. And so as we go through and study through the book of 1 Corinthians, we're going to look at some of the different passages about the divisions. And it's not about following a person. Really, our desire is to follow Christ. But as we live with one another um, in this world, I encourage you within a local church. Someone once said a church is like a hospital, but it's also um, dealing with sick people, but it also is a training center. Evangelism and disciple, those are two key components. Evangelism means telling other people about the gospel. But guess what? If that's it, then what good is that? The good news, you all, we also have to live it, and then sometimes we have to share our lives with other people. Discipleship means telling them how to do it, but also navigating through life on our own. Did you know sometimes Christians make mistakes? We mess up. Did you know that your mess up, your failures, your lives can still be a testimony for Christ to others? Not only your successes, but your failures. And sometimes we're learning from other people, and we're, um, they're teaching us as well. So whatever situation you're in, in your spiritual lives, to relate to other believers within the context of the local church. Just take a moment of reflection. I'm going to ask the deacons to come a little later. If they would come forward, we're going to um, have communion this morning. Thank you.